unity through this season, the care and love that they have for one another and you as a church, and uh, we are greatly blessed, are we not? If you have your Bible, and I hope you do, please turn to Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, where we will uh, look at God's word today. But as you're turning to Ephesians chapter 2, I'd like to share with you, it was a few months ago, I believe it was, where my family was reintroduced to Bob Ross. And I'm not sure if you know who Bob Ross is, but he's a painter, was popular on PBS many years ago, has since passed away. Got the big fuzzy hair that many of us may be uh, seeing ourselves with soon if the salons don't open up soon. Uh, The joy of painting. I think actually some of his paintings were displayed here in Percival a few months ago that you you could go see at Franklin Park. I remember seeing him as a kid on PBS, but I never took much interest in him. But as canvases and paintbrushes and paintings began to appear around my house, as my kids and my wife started trying to replicate Bob Ross paintings, I became interested and decided to try it. And there's a couple things I realized after watching Bob Ross and trying to paint. First, I can't paint. Secondly, painting takes a lot of time. A lot of time. At first, you start painting. Even for most of the program, you can't even tell what the picture is until the end, and you're like, Oh my goodness, that's amazing. How did he do that? He was just stroking and talking and talking about squirrels, and now there's like a beautiful piece of artwork in front of me. One of the things I found most fascinating is uh, we took a trip uh, down to Kentucky a few months ago, and our whole drive there, my wife and I, we were looking out the window, and we were looking at the trees, which Bob Ross often paints. We'd say, that looks like a Bob Ross tree. Or we'd look at the sunset, and we'd say, that looks like a Bob Ross sunset. Everywhere we looked, because we were so consumed by watching Bob Ross, we thought, Bob Ross could paint that. Bob Ross could do that. It just consumed us. And in our passage today, there's something similar actually going on. You didn't think Ephesians and Bob Ross had something in common, but it does. The Apostle Paul actually wants us to look at Christians and be amazed. Not because there's anything great about us, but because God has done something immeasurably great in us through Christ. And it's really this basic Christianity, how we're rescued from sin and death, but it's also very advanced at the same time. So if you have your Bible, turn to Ephesians 2. But before we read verses 1 through 10, I want to briefly look at chapter 1. And In chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is celebrating the work of the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in redeeming a people. And the Apostle Paul in verse 15 of chapter 1 is grateful. He's, he's praising God and he's saying, I'm so thankful for you, church, how you've responded to this in your faith and in your love. And then the last part of chapter 1 there, verses 16 through 19, Paul prays for the churches in Ephesus. And he prays for knowledge and wisdom and understanding and hope. But Ephesians 1.19 says this, Paul prays that they would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power Toward us who believe. Paul prays that for the church, that they would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power. And you can imagine as they've received this letter there in the first century near the city of Ephesus, they might be asking, Are are you sure, Paul? God's immeasurable power, Paul, aren't you writing this letter from a prison cell? Are you sure, Paul? Rome seems pretty powerful. 
The worship of Diana, our, our God in this city, people do a parade twice a week. Our banking, all of our money takes place at her temple. Are you sure, Paul? How do we know the immeasurable power of God's greatness? Well, Paul gives us examples. Chapter 1 ends by Paul talking about God's power in raising Christ from the dead. And I would suggest that chapter 2, where we find ourselves today, is actually an illustration of God's power in Christians. Paul's about to show us that the immeasurable greatness of God's power, which was proven and displayed in the resurrection and ascension, exaltation of Christ, is now being proven and displayed in the lives of Christians. The transforming grace of God in our lives. Christian, today, I hope you see that your testimony is not boring. Obeying Jesus is not a life wasted. You are a walking miracle showcasing the transforming grace of God. So as as you see this passage today and hear it, I pray that you will be more compelled to love, to follow Jesus. Maybe you're, you're listening to this this morning and you're not really sure if you are a Christian or maybe you would even say, I'm not a Christian. And while this passage is clearly addressing Christians, it also serves as a really good explanation of what Christians are and ought to be. And so I pray that you would listen to this, consider this, and ask God to help you understand this today. So please read with me Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 10. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and this is the word of God. The Apostle Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the minds, And were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Would you pray with me? Father, may the words of my mouth, of our mouths, be glorifying to you. May the meditations of my heart, of our hearts, be pleasant to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. The Apostle Paul is saying, Your condition was far worse than you thought. But God's grace is far greater than you can fathom. So live to display the immeasurable greatness of God's power. Let me say that again. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Here's the main idea. Your condition was far worse than you thought. But God's grace is far greater than you can fathom. So live to display the immeasurable greatness 
of God's power. And that, that sentence, that main idea is going to be our three points that we're going to walk through this passage today. So first, your condition was far worse than you thought. As Paul is writing to Christians, he's reminding them of what they've been rescued from in verses 1 through 3. And it was far worse than they thought, than maybe you and I even think sitting here today. To be reminded of God's immeasurable greatness and his power, the Apostle Paul first reminds us of the depth and magnitude of our sin. You want assurance of God's power? You want to see that he's working? Remember where you came from, Christian. Remember the enemy that Jesus defeated. It was far worse than you thought. He talks about our condition. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead. You were detached from life, disconnected from God. Scripture portrays God as the very source of life. So if you are disconnected or detached from God, your condition is death. Yet at the same time, look at verse 2. Although we were dead, we were, in an odd way, very much alive. We were walking, we're living, we were following, we were pursuing passions, carrying out desires. You see, what Paul is saying is that you were very much physically alive, but very much spiritually dead. And look, look what we were following. There was a social influence. We were following the course of this world. We all have a desire to be liked, to fit in. So naturally, we follow this age. We are shaped and influenced by those around us, by our world. But the problem with that, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he says the wisdom of this world is foolishness. And sometimes we mistake this as progress, as being on the right side of history, as the world is progressing. And I would suggest that the world is progressing, but it's on the wrong road. It feels like we're getting closer, but we're actually getting further away. We were dead in our sins, following the course, the age of this world, the influences that surround us, but it gets worse. Look what he says. Not only were you following the course of this world in verse 2, but you were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. We not only have the power of this world trying to put its pressure on us, we also learn that there are spiritual forces that we cannot see which rule over our hearts. 1 John 5, 19 says that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. And what is he doing, this, this supernatural evil being and his army? Well, he's leading us to disobedience. See, this is the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's leading to unbelief. And it's at this point, we, like the, the rest of the world, we may think, really? I understand the social influence, but you're telling me there's a spiritual influence that I can't see? The Apostle Paul says yes, and he's very much alive, and he's very much active in blinding your hearts to seeing the reality of it. You may say, well, I don't believe that. I, I deny that. And we could spend much time talking about that and trying to persuade you that there is a real evil being named Satan and he does have an army. But just think about this. 
Wouldn't one of his greatest tactics, if he does exist, would be to make you not believe in him, to hide his existence? And by denying his existence, actually according to the Bible, you're actually supporting the Bible's argument because he's blinding you. He's hiding his reality from you. There's a spiritual influence. And, and what do we do as a result of all this? Those who are dead in trespasses and sins. Verse 3, we go along with it. It, it describes us as powerless. The, the passions of our flesh. We, we carry these passions of our flesh. We carry out the desires of the body and the minds. It's our very nature of who we are as human beings. We sin because we are born sinners in Adam. We have all been born in Adam and Eve, and we sin. And we not only sin, we carry out these desires. We live for us. Even our good deeds that we do are mixed with selfish desires. We're just floating along. We're dead. Nothing that we can do to stop it. But at the same time, we're enjoying it. We're making real decisions. We're making real uh, decisions that matter, and, and we're following our desires. But God says, according to this, that's death. And this is all taking us somewhere. We have a destination. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Children of wrath. That's our inheritance for those who are dead in their sins, those apart from Christ and his saving work, that's our inheritance, children of wrath. And let's take a moment and think about this, because God's wrath is not a divine temper tantrum, but it's his established opposition against that which is evil. It's not a temper tantrum. God's wrath doesn't reveal that he's bad. Sometimes we think, well, if God has this place of judgment or he's full of wrath, then he's bad. But I suggest the opposite, that God is wrathful. He has judgment because he is so good. You see, you and I, we don't mind a little bit of sin. What's a little, a little lie here and there? What's a little bit of cheating? You know, I, I don't cheat on big things, but little things, it's okay. Nobody else knows about it. Or that, that incident, that injustice that happened in the neighborhood across from me. You know, um, I feel bad for them, but there's nothing I can do about it. You see, we don't mind a little bit of sin. But God has no trace of sin. He rightly condemns it all. The white lies, the little bit of cheating, the seemingly smallest offender... And the seemingly greatest offender all deserve his judgment, his wrath. You wouldn't want a referee or an umpire to dismiss a few rules, would you? So why would you want a God who would overlook a few sins? That's not good. That's injustice. The only reason that you would want the referee or the umpire to overlook a few of the rules is because your team committed it. And that's not only unfair, but it's selfish. And that's not our God. God is fair. He is good. And we rightly, because we have sinned against him, deserve his wrath. And in case you thought this passage was describing somebody else or a certain group of people, look at this passage at the end of verse 3. We're by nature children of wrath, like what? Like the rest of mankind, 
earlier, among whom we all once lived. There's no pointing fingers in this. We're all guilty before God. Now, we all agree that everybody makes mistakes. We all have bad days. No one is perfect. Most people would agree with that statement. But Holy Scripture depicts our human condition in a far more profound way than any of us would like to admit. It's not that we're merely imperfect. It's not that sin is merely corporate or systemic, although it is. It's that sin runs deep into our very being. It's personal. In the early 1900s, the the Times, which is a a British newspaper, once sent out a question to famous authors. And the question was asking, what's wrong with the world today? To which G.K. Chesterton replied, Dear Sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. We don't like to admit it, but Chesterton was actually correct in his analysis. What's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the injustices that we see out there? What's wrong with murders that we see out there? What's wrong with the selfish ambitions that we see out there? The power, the greed, racism, all of this. The Bible describes it as sin. And not merely sin, but rebellion against God. This matches our reality, don't, don't, doesn't it? We don't, we don't do the things we wish we could do, and we, we do things that we wish we hadn't done. We say things that we wish we haven't said before, and we just can't seem to stop. Think about your own life. You, you make a mistake, you mess up, you say, I'll never do that again. And you could clinch your fists. What happens? We do it again. And this just describes, as the Bible describes, we're like prisoners being dragged along. Powerless, disconnected from God. Your condition is not an imperfection or a disease or even you on your deathbed. The condition is this, you are dead. Your condition is far worse than you thought. And it's complex, right? Sometimes you hear people say, well, the devil made me do it. Or The flesh made me do it. Or it was the people around me. And the Bible says you can't blame any of them because they're all kind of complexly complexly involved in all of this. I know we don't want to hear this. We want affirmation. We want to know the good job that we're doing. We want to know that we're trying our best. But admit it. You know what you really like deep in your heart apart from Christ. And there's actually freedom to be found in realizing this and coming to understand this. Remember the, the Christmas carol like Ebenezer Scrooge, right? The, the ghost showed up and they showed him his past and his present and his future. Well, in a similar way, they've showed up in this passage and they're showing us our past, what we have been doing, what we're currently doing, and where we're heading. And what did these realities do to Ebenezer? They shook him. They woke him up. Even the ghost one time, do you remember that moment when the ghost appeared? And he still didn't believe him. He said, you, you're not real. You don't believe in me. And I think that's what we try to do with sin sometimes, or we hear this condemnation that we deserve. We say, I see it, I feel it, but I don't want to believe it, and it's staring us right in the face. And and while this is reminding Christians of where we once were, it also serves as a warning and thus an invitation to those who don't know Jesus to come. Stop pretending it's not there. There's freedom to be found. You don't need medicine, though. You need a miracle. We don't need resuscitation. We need resurrection, right? We're, we're dead in our sins. 
we're dead. Imagine we had a church-wide challenge. And I said, we're going to go to the cemetery. And I want you to bring a couple people back to life. Just one person. It's ridiculous, right? There's nothing we can do to dead people. And in the very same way, the Apostle Paul is showing, we're spiritually dead. There's nothing we can do. It's far greater than we thought. But point number two, God's grace is far greater than you can fathom. Our sin was much worse than we thought, but God's grace is far greater than you can fathom. We see this in verse four. But God, God made us alive. You were in bondage to sin, Christian. God set you free. Christian, you were blindly following the world. God gave you sight. Christian, you were under Satan's rule, his domain. God liberated you. You were dead. God resurrected you. He made you alive. God. God is the subject. God did this. Why? Why would God do this? Well, look, because he is rich in mercy. Psalm 86, 15. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This word for mercy, usually our Bibles translated as steadfast love, is used over 200 times in the Old Testament to describe God. He's merciful. He's rich in mercy. And let's keep in mind, mercy is not an obligation of God. Otherwise, it would not be mercy. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Remember that wrath? Because God is good, he's fair, We deserve that. But because God is rich in mercy, he's saying, I won't give them what they deserve. And tied with his mercy is his love. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. You mean those dead people? Yes. You mean the ones who actively rebelled against God? Yes. You mean the ones filled with guilt, shame, and thoughts they hope nobody else would ever see? Yes. That's God's grace. God made us alive because of his mercy, because he loved us. And we see he's powerful. You can be merciful. You can be kind and loving. But our condition requires more than that. Right? Standing, like we talked about, standing over somebody's grave whom you greatly love, even if you're filled with with great mercy and great love, won't give them life. We not only need a compassionate and merciful and loving God, we need a powerful God if we're to be rescued from our condition. We need power. And like the scene of the movie, In Steps Jesus. Do you remember Luke chapter 7? You don't have to turn there, but I'd like to read a few verses from this scene here. It's where Jesus comes on the scene. He went to a town called Nain in Luke chapter 11. It says his disciples were there, and there was a great crowd with them. And he got near the gate of the town, and he noticed there was a young man who had died. He wasn't sick. He was dead. And this young man was being carried out. It emphasizes that he was the only son of his mother. She was a widow, so she had no hope apart from his well-being to take care of her. And when the Lord saw her, 
You know what it says? It says, Jesus had compassion on her. Jesus had compassion. Now, we could close our Bibles and walk away from that and say, aren't you glad Jesus is filled with love and compassion? But that's not, that's an incomplete picture of the Jesus of Holy Scripture. The Jesus of the Scripture keeps going on. He says, do not weep. Very similar to what we remember about Lazarus. Why Why are you telling me not to weep? My son is dead. My only source of stability and hope in this world, he's gone. Why are you telling me not to weep? That doesn't seem compassionate. That doesn't seem loving. But Jesus goes on. Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has come among us, and God has visited his people. See, but Jesus not only raised other people from the dead, from the outside looking in, Jesus entered into death itself. Remember, Jesus lived the life that we could not live. He was never dead in his trespasses and sin. He never rebelled against God. He never failed to keep God's standard. And what did Jesus do? He went to the cross as the prophet Isaiah. Remember, it's describing Christ, the Messiah, the promised one of the Old Testament. And Isaiah describes him as going to a cross and bearing the sins, not of himself, but of his people, of his sheep. And this Messiah died for the sins of his people. He didn't just look at death from the outside. He didn't just conquer from the outside. He went in. And what happened? Well, Paul reminds us in Ephesians 1.20, God the Father raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Resurrection and ascension. Jesus is the powerful king. He's the one who's both filled with mercy and compassion and love, and he's powerful enough to do something about it. This is exactly what we need. But look at verse 6 here in Ephesians 2. It gets even more amazing. God raised us up with him, with Jesus, and seated us with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. Do you see what Paul is saying in this passage? What's true of Jesus is true of you, Christian. To be a Christian is to be united to Jesus and thus receive his saving benefits. Sometimes theologians like to refer to this as union with Christ. So we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We not only failed to hit the mark, but we actively rebelled against God's standard. We were dead. And Jesus, full of mercy and compassion, saves us. Because the Father, who was who filled with love and mercy, sent his Son, and Jesus willingly came to rescue us from our sins. But Jesus has been made alive and sits in the heavenly places. Thus, those who are united to him by faith, by trusting in him, experience the very presence of God in this life. Because Jesus ascended and rules and reigns, we too reign and rule with Jesus even right now. We proclaim the gospel in his name. We trust that he will continue to wake dead people up because of his great power. And how is all of this applied to us? Well, it's, it's union with Christ, right? Because God the Father is rich in mercy and love, and he sent his Son, who is also filled with mercy and rich in love and power, But how does this get to us? What's the channel that we receive these benefits? Well, it's by grace through faith. 
right? You have been saved by grace, and this is through faith. Have you noticed how much you and I have contributed to this so far? Exactly. It's grace. I guess you could say we, we, we made available the corpse, but God didn't hold a funeral. He worked a miracle. He worked grace. And how does this apply to you and I? We, we receive those benefits by faith. This is by grace through faith, verse 8. And notice what faith, how would you define faith? Well, look what faith is opposed to in verse 9. Not a result of works. So on the one hand, you have faith. On the other side, you have works. So faith is not doing, but believing. Faith is not achieving something, rather it's receiving. And faith is not acting, but resting in something. For by grace you've been saved. For by grace you've been saved. This is all the gift of God. Salvation, grace, even your faith. There's no boasting. It's all God's grace. It's not that you were floating down the river, heading toward a waterfall about to die, and Jesus throwed in the lifeboat and told you, grab a hold of it. No, you were already dead at the bottom of the river. And Jesus jumped in the river, brought you out, and breathed into you the breath of life. Have you put faith in Jesus? Have you trusted in Jesus? Are you aware of your sin and your trespasses? Have you trusted in him? Because you notice a verse that's, a phrase that's used over and over again in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2 is this phrase, in Christ Jesus, God's rescue plan, the power to save you from your sin and death and further destruction is only and supremely in Christ. So if you haven't trusted in Jesus, I wonder what's holding you back from doing that. Well, the Bible says it's sin. Remember, there's, there's the influence around you. There's, there's a spiritual influence and there's your own flesh. But look at this beautiful invitation from our gracious Loving, merciful God. Trust in Jesus. And Christian, let's not be tempted to take credit for our salvation. We like to say, yes, grace, salvation, but at least, at least I'm smarter than the next person to believe. This verse doesn't allow it. It says, it's all a gift of God's grace. Remember in high school and when I entered college and then when I entered seminary, one of the, the things that I remember most is in one of the introduction to the classes is don't copy other people's work. Happened in high school, happened in college, happened in seminary. Don't plagiarize. Well, brother and sister, don't plagiarize God's grace. Don't plagiarize his gift. It's all of God's grace. Look what he has done for us. But notice also why this is happening it just gets better. That's why I said this, God, this grace of God is further and better than we can even fathom. Look at verse 7. So that in the coming ages, implying that there's another age than in which we live right now. There's a coming age and more ages and more ages. What's going to happen? That God is going to show, continually show, the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's a loaded statement. But it's future grace. 
One day, this is implying that not only is the spiritual reality of Christ's resurrection made us alive and ruling and reigning with him even today, but one day this will be truly physical as we will be with God. And think about that. In the coming ages, that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Let's take a moment here and remind you that heaven is not merely a better alternative. Right? Sometimes, maybe, maybe kids, I used to think this way as, as a kid. Right? Hell is a terrible place, and it truly is. But heaven didn't seem that great to me, the way it was presented. Right? But heaven is not merely a better alternative, and you don't have to be afraid. I used to think, I'm going to get bored in heaven. Maybe you've thought that before. Maybe you're watching this right now, and whether you're a kid or an adult, you think, I'm going to get bored in heaven. Eternity is a very long time, and I don't know what I'm going to do. But God, through Paul, is saying, don't be afraid of heaven. You wake up, and you say, wow, I, it can't get any better than this. Eternity, and God's going to say, watch this. Increasing awe and amazement. God's going to continue for eternity, pouring out his immeasurable riches, his kindness toward us in Jesus Think of an experience that you had when you first saw a a, a monument or a a specific landscape or the ocean. Remember that first time you're filled with awe and wonder. You think, this is amazing. And you can go back and see that again and see it again. And it's still amazing. It's still spectacular. But it's not as, as awe, as breathtaking as the first time. Right? Everything in this world, even as great as it is, it loses its awe every time we see it and experience it. That's not the case with God. It's you see this and you think, it can't get any better. And God's saying, it will. Watch this. Heaven will not be boring. Remember, when we've been there 10,000 years, we'll have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Increasing awe and amazement. So your condition, Christian, was far worse than you thought. But God's grace is far greater than we could have. We can't comprehend what that means to experience his immeasurable greatness for eternity. But do you want to see God's great power? Look what he's rescued you from. You want to see his great power? Look at the future, what it holds for us. But also, don't miss what God is doing right now. Third point, live to display the immeasurable greatness of God's power. Live to display the immeasurable greatness of God's power. Salvation is all of God's grace. God saves because he wanted to. We contributed nothing to this. This is why grace is often defined as unmerited favor. And that's true. Grace is unmerited favor. But as uh, Tom Schreiner explains, that's only a partial definition of grace. Because grace is also a transforming power. Grace makes those once dead alive. And notice that grace transforms us in verse 2 from walking in trespasses and sins. That's what we were walking in in verse 2. Look at it. And now look at verse 10. We're walking in good works. Grace transforms. We are God's workmanship, verse 10 says. God's workmanship, his creative accomplishment. 
It's the word poema. Can you, can you hear it in there, the word poem coming out? The NIV translates it as God's handiwork. And we see we were also created in Christ Jesus. So we're God's workmanship there in verse 10. And we're created in Christ Jesus, verse 10, which God prepared beforehand in verse 10. Do you notice the subject? As if it already wasn't clear enough that our salvation is by God. It's God's creation, God's handiwork, God's workmanship. But this idea of, of handiwork or, or poema and the idea of creation, Paul uses that one other place in the Bible. He uses it in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Remember when Paul's describing his, kind of his argument for God, showing that we're all uh, liable to God, we're all guilty before God, we all have a conscience, and he's showing creation, and he's saying, creation, God's invisible attributes have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that poema, the things that he made. So consider what creation does. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, night after night, 24-7, creation is showing the glory of God. Creation shouts the glory of God. Creation displays his beauty. As Calvin once said, creation is the theater of God's glory. Now consider Christian. Consider God's new creation in Christ. Do you see what Paul is showing us here in these verses? Christians display God's handiwork, his power. We are the theater of God's glory. The future promises of a a new heaven and a new earth have been realized of us already. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Christ, they are new creation. Remember? Remember? The first creation, God started with the earth, and then he put the people in it. Well, in the new creation, that's reversed. He's starting with the people, and then he'll bring the new earth. As creation affirms God's existence, demonstrates his beauty, sings of his glory, and displays his immeasurable greatness and power, so do you as new creation. We are his workmanship. He delights in us. He's working in us. He's saying, look what I have done with dead people. People who've rebelled against me, who've transgressed against me, who could do nothing. They weren't even seeking after me. Look at what I've done in my immeasurable grace. And I'm going to showcase this to all eternity. So we're called to live. We're called to live. Walk in good works. God ordained them. He prepared them beforehand. Those whom God saves will walk in good works. In this passage, you may be surprised, but it's, it's actually not commanding us to do good works. There are many other passages in Scripture that do command us to do good works. But this isn't actually commanding us to do good works. It's more of showing us what Christians will do. It's showing us that we will do good works. And, and we need to keep in mind, we're not saved by good works, but we're saved for good works. Salvation is through faith alone. But as often been said, the faith that saves is never alone. As James said, faith without works is dead. As Augustine said, grace is not given to us because we have done good works, but in order that we may be able to do them. 
So don't think of good works as earning your salvation. That's the opposite of what Paul is. Paul is saying you do good works because you have been saved. You've been made alive. You've been made to live. And so it's more of the opportunity of waking up every day and saying, what are we doing today, Dad? What do I get to do with you? In your love and in your purpose for me, what are we doing today? What are we doing today, God? He calls us to live. Now, you may be hearing this passage and think, that's, that's amazing. Immeasurable greatness of God's power, that he's saved people. He's made, he's made Christians, his handiwork, his, his masterpiece, his workmanship. They're no longer enslaved to sin, no longer imprisoned to the world, no longer captive to Satan, restored to life so that we can live. That's what Paul is showing us. But as as we kind of close this down, I think we have a problem. And the problem is that even in this life, Christians, we often forget that we are his workmanship. We often forget we are his workmanship. And there's two groups of us in, in how we forget this workmanship. Maybe there's more, but I thought of two. The first group, we become self-reliant. Sure, God saved me. He's got a great future promise for me, but this little in-between spot, I've got this. I don't really want to confess my struggle with, with anger or lust or jealousy. I'll handle this. I know God said I need to confess my sins, but I got this. I'll take care of that. I'll conceal it. I was wrong, but I don't want to confess that. It's too hard for me to admit. I don't want the correction that comes with that. I'll take care of it. So a test. Are, are you afraid to share your need to God and others? If that's true, you may be self-reliant. You've forgotten his workmanship. But sec- there's a second group. We, we don't become self-reliant, but we become filled with despair. God couldn't use me anymore. I keep failing. I'm not gifted like they are. I'm too young. I'm too old. I failed as a husband, a wife, a parent. So a test for you. When, when you think of God, do you feel rest and joy? Or do you feel the need to impress him, to win his favor and affection? Interestingly enough, both look in the mirror. Both the self-reliant person and the person filled with despair, both look in the mirror and don't see God's masterpiece that he's forming and creating and making. They just see themselves. Both look in the mirror and not see God's strength, but see your own strength or lack thereof. Both forget grace. And let me just say, to the self-reliant, if you're struggling with this, you're not that powerful. You're not that powerful. You think that God raised you from the dead to go back to your own strength and wisdom? His grace has brought me safe this far, and grace will lead you home. There's grace to be found in confessing your failures, your needs, your sins to God and one another. He's given us the church. And maybe you're filled with despair. God can't use me, and you list so many reasons. I'd also say to you, you're not that powerful You're not that powerful to be outside of God's transforming power. You think what God has, God has raised you to life and now somehow you can change his mind, change his affections, change his love for you. He loves you. He delights in you. He ordained your purpose before your very existence. He doesn't make mistakes. So don't boast in your own power or look at your own strength. 
Paul is calling us to live because we've been made alive with Christ by grace. Put others first. We're kind. We're forgiving one another. We're humble and patient. Our marriages are self-sacrificial toward each other. Our families are filled with children who love and obey their parents. How do you account for all of this? God's immeasurable power. Where's God's power? That first church or the group of churches may have been asking Paul. Paul is saying, it's right here. And of course, I can't look at you right now, but I know you're watching. And so it's you, it's me, it's what God's transforming grace is doing in our lives. So live, live. God made you alive, live. Your condition was far worse than you thought, but God's grace is far greater than you can fathom. So live to display the immeasurable greatness of God's power. Let's pray. Father, we, we don't know what to say because we've done nothing to, to earn your favor. We've done nothing to, to rescue ourselves from sin. But we, we give all the praise and glory to you because it's by grace that we have been saved. And we simply receive this by trusting in you, coming with our hands empty. And Father, I pray that this grace which we just talked about and learned about would transform our lives, as you say it will, so that we would live, not for our own glory or in our own strength, but to display your greatness, your power. We praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. We invite you to join us in singing the first verse of Victory in Jesus.